This is Commerce Shenanigans, episode 612, a conversation with Paul Mounts. Welcome to the Comic Against Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 612. It's my conversation with the amazing colorist, Paul Mounts. We talk about his uh, entry into comics. We talk about uh, his approach, the different books he's worked on, some of the amazing collaborations he's had in, had in the past, like with uh, Brian Hitch, with Amanda Connor, with Michael Ringo. Uh, it was a really enjoyable, fun conversation. Uh, I really like talking to colorists. There's just something about, you know, I don't know a lot about how that works. I look at it, I'm just mesmerized by the amazing colors these guys put together, and I can't even imagine how it all works. So I really am just so fascinated to find out about their process, and uh, especially the, the level of collaboration that he kind of indicates here that he had with, you know, some of the, the long-standing artists he's worked with a lot. Um, so I found this to be an incredibly enjoyable conversation, I hope you really enjoy it as well. You can email me at, at the show at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, read interview us iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. But for, uh, without further ado, let's get right into the conversation with Paul Mounts. Paul, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you this evening? I'm great. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, it's uh, exciting to have you on the show. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. But uh, before we can really talk about your work, we need to understand a little bit more about uh, Paul and where he came from. So what, what was it about comics that you first became interested in, and, and when did that even occur? Oh, gosh. Probably, probably my first real interest in comics came when I was about 9 or 10. Um, we had a... Uh, an English teacher who would let us go and leave our desks and go sit in the back corner of the room and just read books. She had a little library set up there if we finished our work early. And she was a cool teacher. She had comics back there, not just books. And this is around 73, 74. And so it was right about the time the Jack Kirby Fourth World stuff was coming out. And oh, wow. The, the really good Kurt Swan Murphy Anderson Superman stories and, you know, John Romita and Spider-Man. And, uh, so I, I, I got all the good stuff really, really early on. <laughs> <laughs> what were the characters that you were kind of gravitating towards when you were that age? Uh, well, Spider-Man, you know, I love Spider-Man. Um, I love the Jack Kirby and Jimmy Olsen stuff just because it had all the wacky DNA stories and, you know, there weren't any comics doing stuff about DNA experimentation back then. <laughs> um, actually, really, I really love the Carl Barks, Uncle Scrooge stuff. Oh, yeah, that stuff's um, great. I could tell, even at, even at that age, I could tell, like, a Carl Barks, Uncle Scrooge. I didn't know his name, but I could recognize the difference in the writing and the art from, like, you know, a Carl Barks, Donald Duck, or Uncle Scrooge story and Donald Duck story than you know, from other Disney artists and writers. For sure. Wasn't, wasn't he in some places known as the good duck artist? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I uh, came across Tintin about the same time, too, I guess. So the Air J stuff for Tintin, really. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of lucked out coming across good stuff as a kid. For sure. It's interesting. I think of – I really equate Tintin to a school library, and I don't know why. Um, but Man, I'm, that's been – 
that's where it wasn't ours. It was in the school library. Yeah. Like I, I never had I never had access. I mean, growing up in Canada, we didn't have comics in the libraries. That just wasn't a thing, and and just you couldn't ever. I mean, nowadays it's more common, but when I was growing up, it didn't exist. But I know Tintin was the only thing you would ever see. So it's like the only you know type of uh, I guess cartooning or you know comic books that we ever got to see that was kind of allowed, quote unquote. Yeah, I, I sort of vaguely remember that they were in maybe like some sort of scholastic publication that serialized them and stuff. Cause I remember like Tintin in Tibet, I think was the first one I read. You know, I think, I think they thought there was educational value in that <laughs> travel log. You learned about other lands. And <laughs> so now, when did you kind of decide or realize that, you know, you, you wanted to be involved in art that you had, you know, an, uh, an interest in, in becoming an artist. Um, my mom always said that I drew, all the time from the time I was a little kid. The first time I remember being really serious about it, I, when I was 13, for my 13th birthday, I really wanted a drawing table. And uh, we lived in Indiana, just across the border from Illinois. And so my mom took me down in Chicago to the big art store down in Chicago, Flax Art Store, and uh, picked out a really nice drawing table for me. And that was my birthday present <laughs> that year. And uh, I still still have that drawing table, actually. It's a, it's a great one. So. Oh, wow. I must have been fairly serious at 13 about it, but I couldn't tell you. I mean, you know, memories are vague. For sure. Well, I'm just impressed that, that the table still exists. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, lovely table. Well, it was, a, it was obviously a good investment in your future, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, I was always very lucky that my parents never tried to discourage me from uh, from being an artist for our career of any kind, which uh, was really surprising because they were both Depression-era kids, you know, and, uh, and you know, you'd think that they would have really gravitated towards you know, business or something like that, and mm-hmm. uh, they, always, they always encouraged me, so. So at what point do you kind of decide that I am going to follow artists, uh, sorry, art as a passion, I'm not going to make it, you know, my, my livelihood? Because that is a big jump, because a lot of people like doing art, a lot of people are good at it, but not a lot of people actually make that jump to actually making it work. So how does that transition between I like this to I'm actually going to do this work? Um, I think it probably was always there from the time, especially when I was a teenager. Um, I remember once I figured out that I was going to go to art school instead of a regular college or university. And I was always like the straight A student, the good kid, you know, everything like that. And it was going to be valedictorian. Suddenly realized I was going to art school. I didn't really have to take SATs. I didn't have to worry about college (laughs) exams and uh, got a, got a B in my report card. And uh, the guidance counselor came in and took me to his office and asked me if everything was okay at home because I got a B. Oh, wow. Everything's fine. I'm just going to be an artist. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that really, that says a lot when they're like, whoa, what B we're worried about you. So yeah, I mean, by that point, I was so, I was like, yeah, I'm going to art school. I don't I don't need college. And that sounded really appealing to me too. It's like I don't have to worry about SATs and you know all the all the junk that most people have to worry about with college. So true. So which art school did you end up going to? Uh, the American Academy of Art in Chicago. Yeah, so, went there. Uh, it, was two, it was just a two year program when I went. That's really all I could afford. But you know, it was two years to get in a lot of good practice and you know intense life drawing classes and i mean it was it was a really good school and mm-hmm. uh um you know two years to put a portfolio together and try and get my act together so now when you graduate what's what is running through your head on like what which, which direction did you think you were going to head after art school because that's you know that's a big jump right and now you're done you've done the kind of the work and now you have to kind of enter the workforce somewhere uh, how do you make that leap 
Yeah, my 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 program was basically half illustration and half advertising design. And Chicago was a big advertising town, so I just assumed I was going to end up in advertising, working at J. Walter Thompson or you know Leo Burnett or one of those places. And um, they actually had a job placement program, and they had an art, they had a uh, a job placement for a, a storyboard studio. That was actually the name of the place, the Storyboard Studio, and we did storyboards for TV commercials and animatics and things like that for uh, for you know McDonald's and all the, all the local companies that gravitated around Chicago. And uh, so yeah, I ended up there and I did storyboards and animatics for three years right out of art school. Wow, that's a pretty good experience. Yeah, it was good, and and they didn't really have a really good colorist there to color the animatics, so I just kind of ended up being in charge of the coloring of all the storyboards and animatics. <laughs> and so then the coloring just kind of kind of stuck with me after that. So. Now, what like what what makes a good colorist, or like what really sets someone apart, especially in the early stages? You know, obviously, with very different tools that would be available than there are now. What is in the early days that you kind of were good at enough to kind of make it your thing? And what makes a good colorist, especially at that time? You know, I don't think the basic needs for making a good colorist have really changed that much. Um, a lot of it was established even as far back as Marie Severin back in the 1950s. Um, you know, there's been a lot of showing of her work and stuff lately since she just passed. And uh, I mean, she really set the standard for using color in comics in a storytelling sense. And that's really what it comes down to. You can do use completely flat colors. I mean, when I started in comics, we were still doing the uh, the old flat, you know, like the 70s flat color, you know, with all the little codes that you'd have to write on the page. <laughs> and, uh, um, but yeah, it all comes down to storytelling, just making sure your eye goes through the page, sees what needs to be what needs to be seen, what the writer wants you to see, what the writer doesn't want you to see. You, know, you don't want to foreshadow things too too densely, but um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's, it's kind of been that way for me through the flat color work and through blue line color and um, into the computer work. So Now, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead for a moment, but in, sure. as someone who kind of, again, came through the industry and then was part seeing the digital revolution in color, like how has that changed uh, your workload? How has it changed how you approach coloring? And did you do enjoy the, the kind of the switch to digital that happened over the course of the last I mean, now it's so entrenched, but, you know, 20 years ago, it was still kind of a new thing. Right, yeah. I mean, the, the whole industry switched over, I mean, really quickly in the early 90s. You know, I mean, the image guys really kind of took off with it around 91, I guess it was. And, uh, you know, by 93, 94, it was almost all switching over. I remember I was uh, still coloring everything hand-painted blue line work, which... Uh, which is a process where you, the liner is an acetate overlay, and you paint on an illustration board beneath it, so you can paint, do all the really fancy color without obscuring the line work, and then the line work is put back on top, and it's scanned from there. Um, but yeah, I remember it was in October of 1994 when uh, some guys come in and they were installing the computers because back then, you know, you had guys come in to install your computers. <laughs> <laughs> But I had never touched a computer in my life. It sounds so weird today to think about that. But, you know, I didn't know what a mouse was. I didn't know how to click on a file or a folder or how any of this stuff worked. And I, I literally had to learn how to use a computer and learn Photoshop in a day to, 
do a job that I had accepted and said, yes, I can do this. I'll have this for you tomorrow because I was an idiot. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was a fairly small job. It was only like four or five trading cards, but it was, you know, it was, it was enough of a job when I was still trying to learn what the hell I was doing. But Absolutely. You know. As as later editions of kind of Photoshop and those type of things came available, did you find were you constantly upgrading, or were, did you get kind of used to a certain program and just use that forever? Because I remember speaking with I think it was Richard Isidove said that he kind of stayed with one thing forever until he literally can't couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, I I, I tend to like to stay fairly up to date with things. Um, I did use an older version of Photoshop for a long time just because. You know, when they first went to the subscription model, I don't really like the whole subscription model for software, so I stayed with my old bought version of Photoshop for a lot of years. But, you know, now the new versions have gotten so good and so fast that it's it's time to upgrade, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've had friends who learned on Photoshop 3.0 on Mac System 7.5, and, you know, up until just a couple of years ago, we're still working on you know, an old Mac using system 7.5 Photoshop (laughs) three, because that's what they learned on. They didn't learn anything new. And I find that, uh, I find that a little odd. You know, they say they get used to it and it's faster, but you might take like a few hours or a day to learn the new software, but the time you'll save and the things you can do once you do learn it. I mean, it's, it's, it's the the savings in time is incredible then, you know, absolutely. and your abilities to do more. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to upgrade my Illustrator skills right now because it's been a while since I've really learned all the new things that Illustrator can do over the last five or ten years. So, um, you know, it's always a learning curve. For sure. So let's go back a little again. So yeah. at what point then, so again, you've done a few years at that company. You, you've you learned about, you know, you started becoming more of a colorist. You, you're starting to kind of expand in that direction. When does it kind of click that I want to move into comics and actually do it as the color artist? Well, I spent three years doing storyboards, and the company was kind of starting to fall apart. Um, the uh, I think there was a, just a stodginess about the art style that wasn't keeping up with the times. Mm. There, there was a lot of reasons for it. But um, there was also a couple small comics publishing companies in Chicago at that point. There was Now Comics, there was First Comics. Kamiko hadn't come to Chicago yet. They were still out of town. But uh, but I had friends. You know, there's it was a small community of artists in Chicago, people I went to school with and things like that, and we'd stay in touch. And So I would start doing some coloring for uh, for Now Comics and for First Comics, and you know, nobody was really doing a whole lot of the higher-end blue line coloring at that time. It was a really small, there was maybe like four or five people that were doing it you know, at one <laughs> point. And uh, so I think I started, if I remember right, yeah, I started Now Comics, I worked under a pseudonym, Signet Ash. Oh, yeah? I was at Now Comics for a couple of years, um, and I worked as editor and art director. I penciled books, I inked books, I lettered books, I colored books. Oh wow! I wrote some stuff. I, I you know, art directed. Um, we uh, we had a lot of fun. We didn't get paid anything. We got paid like five bucks a page. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you know? And we do we would I would color an entire issue of a book like Rust um, in literally a day sometimes because the pencil and inker were always late because you know they weren't getting paid well so um but it was good it was a it was like a crash course in learning comics and then i moved over to first comics and started doing coloring for them and i did a little bit of inking for them i inked a couple issues of dread star did some painted covers but the coloring really seemed to be 
the bread and butter and taking off and uh did that for a little while at first comics and then a friend of mine that i'd gone to high school with he had moved to new york to become a comic artist and oddly enough was working on a book that marvel wanted really nice color on and he said oh, i know somebody's doing that because marvel had no they didn't even have the, the technical setup to make the blue lines at that point they were doing a thing called gray lines that steve olaf had been coloring their magazines on but oh, wow. um that technology was all on its way out because you had to paint on like a uh almost like a photographic paper and it was a little tougher the blue lines you could actually paint on illustration boards you could do a little more with it um so marvel contacted me and i hooked him up with a service bureau to make the blue lines and started coloring for them and uh you know, some of those books were pretty ugly because the scanning and reproduction was so terrible on them, but uh, got my foot in the door. So, Who were the kind of the earliest editors you got to deal with there? Uh, Greg Wright, I believe, was one of the first editors I worked with there. Worked on a graphic novel called Arena with Bruce Jones. And then, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember who the editor on The Adventures of Captain America was. That was a book, uh, Kevin, it was... Uh, Fabian Niciesa oh, yeah. and uh, Kevin right. McGuire. And they just reissued that after 25 years. And that's another book I wish that I had a chance to recolor because the separations and the, the film on that book was so terrible. They don't look anything like the original painted pages. Oh, really? But, uh, yeah, that. And then Bob Budiansky on the Marvel trading cards. I did something over a thousand trading cards in something like 18 months uh, for Bob crap. Budiansky and the special projects people there. So Wow. I mean, that was obviously a big time, too, because I remember those trading cards were huge. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of cards. <laughs> and those those were all, that was all still the hand-painted stuff. This is all pre-computer, so all those cards were hand-painted. Oh, my so, goodness. Yeah. How, 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 like, long would it take you to kind of do each each of those images? You know, it would depend on the artist, depend on the card. They would come, they would generally come kind of nine up. They'd put, you know, nine up on a board, so, you know, if you took nine trading cards, you put them in a binder in one of those binder sleeves. Right. You know, they did them so the nine cards would make one big picture once they were all put together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, and there was... I mean, I'd have to turn out 10 or 12 cards a night to get to keep up with the deadlines and that stuff. Oh. They were they were pretty intense. You know, a lot of all-nighters. I was young then. Of course, I'm, old, I'm older now, and I still do all-nighters, so I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> so you, but you don't you don't ever miss the trading card days? Um, they were fun. I got to you know it was fun. It was fun. I got to work with a bunch of different artists, or even a set like the last X Men set, which was the last thing Jim Lee ever did for Marvel. That was amazing. He penciled and inked by himself the hundred card set in something like a week and a half or two weeks, <laughs> and they were gorgeous because it was it was just it was pure drawing. For him, you know, it didn't have a chance to get stiff and overworked. It was just, it was just pure Jim Lee drawing, and they were beautiful. I, I loved working on those. Um, yeah, the trading cards were a lot of fun, and you know, back when they were, it was all hand painted blue line, I had nice original art to sell at conventions too. So that was a nice income stream. Yep, <laughs> that would do it. What was what was your your first kind of regular kind of coloring gig that wasn't trading cards? It was actually in comics. Oh gosh. So much of what I did early on was was like special projects and licensing and things like that. Um, my first regular gig, I mean, I did a series of short stories in Showcase 93 for Neil Posner. Okay. Um, that was all flat colors, like old school DC flat color. Um, 
I think maybe the first real regular book that I had was I worked on the tents with Tony Daniel for Image Comics. Oh yeah. I mean, I did a few issues of Brigade when when Image first came out. Um, you know, Marvel wasn't doing any blue line color on its uh, any you know painted color on its regular books, so you know you almost had to go to Image to get that stuff done. And, um, so I'd actually do blue lines, and they would have them computer separated at their end. Which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. <laughs> but uh, um, do, let me yeah, just most, ask a, a random question: Do you like like an ongoing like? I mean, everyone likes ongoing gigs, so that's not really what I mean. But like, do you like kind of working on a on a consistent title um, so that I mean, it might mean less kind of stretching your artistic muscles as opposed to kind of doing more special products and doing more kind of random stuff. Like, do you prefer kind of more variety, or do you like kind of a consistent book with a consistent tone? You know, I'm, I'm kind of half and half on that. Um, I like having a regular consistent book just for, you know, the, the regular, you know, you know it's going to be their income for one thing, mm. the regular paycheck. Um, and then just building a body of work. You know, when I did the Ultimates with uh, Mark Miller and Brian Hitch, I mean, you know, we put together a pretty good run there. Um, Fantastic Four I was on for 12 years. I did 130 issues. Um what else? Telos. I did, you know, I did all of Michael Ringo's Telos run. Mm-hmm. But I now like breaking that up with, you know, covers and special projects, things and posters and stuff like that. Or even just working on different art styles. You know, there's a, you flex a lot of different muscles when you're coloring Brian Hitcher, Neil Adams, than when you're coloring Amanda Connor or Mike Ringo, you know, so. Very true. To going back to the the 10th for a minute, what was it like to kind of be, uh, be coloring Tony Daniel at that point in his career, which is really early still? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was fun. You know, he was another local Chicago guy, and uh, and uh, I I don't know, I enjoyed it. We had a pretty good run on that book. Um, you know, I don't I don't have a whole lot of memories. Of it. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're working constantly on this stuff, and you're just you're trying to get it done, you're not really thinking about it True. in terms of like, oh, I'm gonna have memories of this. You know, and I'm raising I'm raising kids at the same time, and mm. so you know, forgive me <laughs> if my I don't have any spectacular stories about. No, no, that's all right. Um, well, let me ask a, a different question then. Uh, is there any specific book that you've worked on that you felt that really challenged you, or had you have to change your game a little, or like bring it up to a different level, or really kind of do something that you weren't used to doing at that point that really again pushed you in a different direction? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I think working with Brian Hitch on the Ultimates <clears throat> certainly pushed me in a certain direction. Um, you know, when I talk about coloring, just as pure storytelling. You know, Brian, Brian was very big on that. He didn't really care about, you know, how nicely something was rendered. He wanted it to read. He wanted the, you know, the color relationships to be right. Um, you know, whereas working with Michael Ringo on Telos, it was more like doing an animated movie. It was like kind of doing a Disney film. Um, but with darker tones mm-hmm. and uh, so you know very very different skills you know there's a lot of like um, cut shapes and geometric feels in Mike Ringo's work whereas Brian Hitch was a much more naturalistic uh, feel to it um, 
Was it hard to go back and forth? Because, again, you're, you're doing Fantastic Four with Ringo at the same time as you're doing Ultimates, and those books could not look more different in terms of, in terms of <laughs> yeah. the, especially with the colors, too, right? It, I mean, as, like, yeah. the art style is obviously very different as well, but your colors are really what changed the tone of those so much because the Ultimates is so grounded, and, yes, the artwork's beautiful, but if it wasn't for your colors to really make it feel like real world, it wouldn't work the same. And the same thing with Ringo. His amazing, crazy, over-the-top kind of fun style would not work the same without your colors elevating it to the next level. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I say, I think I like the challenge of going back and forth. I think I would get really bored doing the same thing all the time. Um, you didn't do them like back-to-back in the same evening, though, right? Yeah, oh yeah, often, sure, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I just, I did that yesterday. As a matter of fact, I colored this J.G. Jones um, Spider-Man cover, which is very, very illustrative and painterly, and then start working on this other project, which I can't really talk about yet, but it's it's a very, very animated, you know, um, much more modern, almost anime feel to it. Hmm. Uh, so... You know, it's 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 good to it's good to change it up once in a while. I don't want to get stuck, and sometimes I can cross pollinate between the two too and discover new things. You know, I've been doing this a long time. I still discover new little quirks that I can put into things. A question about obviously, as you said, you worked on Fantastic Four for a long time, but when you were working with Mike on that, was yes. did you were you kind of part of the package deal? Because obviously you'd already worked with them before. You guys already yeah. kind of worked together. What was your collaboration like, or was there much of one? No, Mike was Mike was great. I mean, we'd be on the phone all the time. You know, we worked together on Telos, and you know, I not only colored Telos, but I lettered it, I art directed it, I designed the logos, I you know put put all the put all, all the production work on it. Oh, wow. Um, so then when he went to Fantastic Four, you know, brought me along to that, and then. Um, of course, went to uh, Peter Parker Spider Man. I went to, with him on that also. So, you know, Mike and I had a great working relationship. He was uh, he was a really good guy. Never, never quite really knew how good he was. He was always saying, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't be so cartoony. Maybe, you know, maybe this is the wrong style. All these image guys are getting all this work, and you know, getting all this acclaim, and nobody's paying attention to me. And maybe my layouts are too stodgy. And I just I'd look at these pages, and you know, his sheer drawing skills were better than just about anybody working in comics." If you look at, you know, he, there was never a stock Michael Ringo pose. You know, every every panel was different. Every every character was different. Every, you know, he never took the shortcuts, and it was just it was amazing to me. But uh, yeah, what, he was a good, good, really good guy to work with. What currently working artist do you think most kind of? taps into that same type of energy that Mike had because yeah, his art is so special and it's great to go back and, and read it and it's sad that we don't get more of it obviously but who working today do you think kind of taps into that same type of vein uh, you know I, I, as far as somebody who I work with would probably be Amanda Connor you know she's the mm-hmm. same thing her work looks kind of cartoony on the surface and it has that liveliness on the surface but if you really look at it the the structure and the just sheer drawing skills that Amanda brings to things is just just phenomenal you know I mean she'll every cover she does is is a full story you know she can't just draw a simple cover which <laughs> I give her crap about all the time because she's always late with things then she needs me to color it overnight and it's like yes you want me to color this overnight but there's 17 characters in it thank you <laughs> But, uh, you know, again, she doesn't take the shortcuts, and I, I really admire artists to do that. Um, you know, I think uh, I think it's so easy to look at certain art 
and say, oh, that, that looks cartoony, that looks childish or something like that. But, uh, you know, the people who really have the drawing chops are the people who can simplify their stuff and make it work like that, you know? Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Have you ever seen Alex Ross's cartoons? I don't think I Alex, have, no. Alex Ross is a phenomenal cartoonist. He's done some great little cartoons of, like, Captain Marvel. You know, this is Shazam, Captain Marvel. <laughs> I would love to see him do a full cartoon book sometime. I know it's not his brand, and it's not what, you know, people expect from an Alex, Alex Ross book, but he really is a phenomenal cartoonist. That is interesting. That yeah, you you make a good comment there that it's not his brand. It's interesting how I, there's not many artists who are so like you think of an like an Alex Ross thing. It has to look a certain way. Yeah, which is not fair to the artists. But no, I think I think there's a lot of artists who kind of get stuck in that mold, and uh, you know, uh, you look at their work from 20 years ago. You can't tell it apart from what they're doing today, and I think that's. I don't know. I would get so bored. You were talking about working up different art styles. I would get so bored if I was an artist and I just worked in that exact same mode, that same style, same storytelling method, same rendering methods for you know twenty years straight. Um, you know, you look at somebody like say, you know, look at Adam Hughes. His art has changed so much since he was drawing um, Justice League oh, yeah. back in the eighties. And what was there was an independent book. Was what was the independent book he did before that? I can't remember the name of it, but. Yeah, I mean, you just look at the evolution of his art style, or Mike Mignola, or you know, any number of people like that who remain fresh and have a voice because they keep reinventing themselves. For sure. A question I have about well, Ultimates is first, like, how did you kind of get tapped to be the colorist on that book? Um, a friend of mine had said, "I've got an artist, and he's doing a cover for a Doctor Who magazine, and needs a colorist for it." Okay, sure. And um, so I got a call, and it was it was Brian Hitch. And I wasn't really that familiar with his work at this point. Um, this was, you know, he had done the Authority, but I, I don't know, I didn't really pick that up at all. Mm-hmm. And the cover was really nice, and I colored it, and he seemed very happy with what I did on. He says, "Look, I'm doing this new book for Marvel. Would you like to color that?" It's like cool. <laughs> so that, was, that was pretty much the whole conversation. You know? Oh wow. Um, Does that happen often where, um, like, an artist will kind of ask for you or do you usually kind of just get the editor kind of thinks you'd be the right fit? Like, more often than not, what seems to be what brings you onto a book? You know, it, it can work both ways. Like I say, you know, Amanda usually asks for me. Uh, J.G. Jones always asks for me. Um, uh, you know, I worked with Brian for 12 years. Um but then there's other books, like I'm working on The Immortal Hulk right now, and that was Tom Brevoort coming to me, and he knew I was looking for a project. He said, look, I think I've got a project that you would be good on. He told me, the, it was funny, he told me at New York Comic Con last year, he said, you know, I'm trying to find something for you. It's just hard to find, like, the right project to team you up on. It's like, no, I get it. That's great. And, you know, you hear editors say something like that all the time, so you don't even know if it's, you know, mm-hmm. just them blowing you off or something. But, <laughs> yeah, then, like, he called me a little later so I got the book. I got the book for you. And I am so glad because I'm having so much fun working on Immortal Hulk. Uh, Al Ewing's doing amazing things in the writing, and Joe Bennett and Rui Jose's art is just incredible. And, you know, oh, for sure. I think we make a really good team on that book. So when you come on a book and you're launching something with like a number one issue, so like yeah. an Ultimates or like an Immortal Hulk, how do you kind of 
work out the visual aesthetic that you're going to go for with the colors. I mean, both those books are very unique, I mean, in tone, right? I mean, Immortal Hulk has very much kind of a horror vibe um, that you get to tap into. And then with Ultimates, it was very much a real world, but how much of... You know, discussion was there on kind of how are we going to construct this world to really look like, you know, the the world outside our window to really nail the certain aesthetic that we want to do with the story. Yeah, there, there, there's definitely um, conversations ahead of the fact um, on the Hulk book. Uh, Tom Brevoort, when he was putting the whole book and team together and working with Al Ewing and Joe Bennett, they had this vision of it being, like you said, a horror book. It wasn't going to be a typical Marvel superhero book. It was going to be a horror book. And, you know, the thing they kept bringing up was we wanted to be have that kind of like Alan Moore Swamp Thing vibe to it. It's like, wow, that's pretty high shooting there. <laughs> sure, <laughs> let's go for that. <laughs> um, so then, you know, color-wise, they pretty much don't leave it to me. If they give me the notes on that, I'm, you know, I think I've been doing this long enough. They trust me to come up with something that will work along those lines and if i fall astray they will tell me you know i mean i send in the jpegs i'm working on them and everybody puts their little notes in and their comments and you know eventually we we gel more and more um it's interesting because i'm working on several new projects right now and each one of them visually is just vastly different than the other um besides the hulk there's one book i'm working on that has a very kind of 90s image style to it Hmm. although much better drawn than a lot of those books were. <laughs> and then, like I said, one that has a very almost, like, cross between Disney animation and, you know, anime kind of feel to it. Um, and I'm trying to work out palettes and everything on that one right now and work with the artist on how it's supposed to look. So, you know, and some, are, some artists have a much stronger sense of what they want than others. Um you know, Brian Hitch and I would go through every issue pretty much before I ever colored anything. You know, what are the beats of the story? What do you want this scene lighted kind of like in blues? Do you want this scene more natural? That kind of thing. Um, you know, Mike and I worked very closely. Michael Ringo and I worked very closely on his books. Um, I usually talk to Amanda when I Amanda Connor when I color her stuff, but we. You know, we've been working together for almost 20 years now, so she sends me a piece. I can pretty much read her mind on what she's looking for before we even do it. So, you know, we're, we're pretty simpatico now. Um, what, I mean, know. it's interesting. So, like, obviously you've had really long-standing relationships with a lot of these artists. Is it, I mean, what is it like to get paired up with someone new still? I mean, obviously it still happens all the time, but, I mean, when you've developed shorthand with all these, other, all these other people, what is it like to kind of be able to start a fresh new relationship, and what? how do you kind of enter that collaboration? Yeah, I mean, like I said, that's what I'm working on with that, that kind of anime-looking book right now because uh, the artist has a very strong visual sense of what they want on it. And it's really different than what I usually do, which is a really nice struggle for me in a way. <laughs> you know, push, pushes me out of my comfort zone. I enjoy that. And it's going to be terrifying when I start sending the first pages in to get the reactions to, you know, if I'm thinking in the, along the same wavelength that they are. Um, but... You know, we'll 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 figure it out as we go. You know, I always tell every artist. I told Joe Bennett this on the Hulk. It's like the more notes you send me, as I send stuff in, the more I get closer to what you want on it. You know, I like this. I don't like this. You know, I'd like the palette darker here, or more natural here, or less rendering here, or more rendering here. You know, as every artist wants different things in their work. So, um, 
And, you know, you take the cues from line art, too. Uh, an artist that draws more naturally, you're probably going to have a more, you know, realistic, naturalistic palette than somebody who draws in a, uh, a more abstract style. Absolutely. So, you know, we had that one issue of the Hulk recently, I think it was issue four, that had like the three or four different artists. Maybe it was issue three. Issue three, that had like the three or four different artists telling different viewpoints and different stories. And, mm. You know, I had to color in like three or four different styles to match the art style because one was like a vertigo horror style and one was like the regular Joe Bennett style. And, you know, one was like a classic 1970s Marvel comic style. And <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's the same book you run into that. What you, sp- you said earlier, obviously, you did such a long tenure on Fantastic Four. Was it weird to not be coloring it anymore once you left it because of how long it was? Yeah, but you know, the book got canceled right after I left it. It couldn't survive without me. So that's, <laughs> it, it's a story I tell people. It has nothing to do with uh, Marvel not wanting to do a Fantastic Four book anymore. They just couldn't survive without me. Uh, no, it was, you know, it was, yeah, it was it was a little strange after all that time. And working with so many different writers and artists and everything throughout the run. And, uh, um, yeah, you know, you, you get used to that, that regular gig. <laughs> especially over 12 years it's like suddenly that's gone it's like wait a minute that was my monthly that was my monthly paycheck right there <laughs> but uh, uh i do know. i'm curious too i mean so like in the late 90s when you kind of start doing more work for marvel and then yeah. kind of marvel work kind of takes over um what was that kind of a natural process it just was like well i just happened to be getting more work or was it was it ever like an exclusive contract no they had offered me exclusive several times but um Honestly, the way the exclusive contracts were worded, it really wasn't worthwhile, especially because of where I lived was part of it, because they couldn't offer health insurance in Illinois. You know, the, the health insurance, they could only their company only worked in certain states, mm. things like that. So, um, yeah, I, DC offered me exclusive at one point back when I was just getting stuff with computers. They had a program for colorists where dc would actually pay for all your computer equipment and set you up but you'd have to sign like a three or five year exclusive with them which you know wasn't a bad deal actually at the time i i didn't take it but i don't think it would have been a bad thing if i had mm-hmm. um but uh yeah and i mean i was doing even when i wasn't doing regular books for marvel i was doing a lot of like i say licensing work um you know, a lot of stuff for advertising. I was doing a lot of style guide work for DC for their licensing. Like uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez would draw, you know, all those famous iconic Batman's, I mean, uh, Batman and Superman poses and things like that that would be used on underoos and toys and <laughs> things like that. And I colored all that stuff, um, you know. So, and actually the money on that is better than editorial. You know, it's, uh, you don't get royalties, but, uh, but you know, the upfront money is good because it's all licensing and that. It's like advertising, you know. It all kind of comes full circle, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, when you, in a few years ago you got to work on before Watchmen, Silk Spectre, what was yes. what was that like to work on such an iconic property? I mean, obviously working with Amanda, so you know the art's going to be good. But what was it like, kind of going in knowing that there's such a legacy to that that property? <sighs> you know, I I tried to keep my head down amongst all the controversy about that. Um, I'll tell you the one thing that I remember so specifically, and Amanda would tell you the same thing, was that while she was doing that, we were also doing the Supergirl Wednesday comics. 
yeah. um, project for, for for DC, which I don't know if too many of your listeners will know what that is, but they published almost like a Sunday news comic newspaper comic section once a week, every week, for I think it was 12 or 13 weeks in a row. And the pages were huge. They were, you know, like 16 by 24 or something. They were giant. So every single page of that newspaper was like doing four pages. And we'd have one page in every issue. So we're, Amanda's not, you know, she's so detail-oriented, and especially at Silk Spectre. Oh, my God, the, the time she put in in doing reference work for San Francisco in the 60s and things like that. I mean, that book was so visually accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember between doing the Silk Spectre and the Wednesday comics, it almost killed both of us. That's the one thing I remember from that project. I, you know, as far as being an iconic property, I I always liked Watchmen. I always, I always thought it was a great piece of craft work. I don't think it's the fine literature that a lot of people say it is, but I know I'm in the minority on that. <laughs> of the books that came out at that time, I always thought that the Frank Miller Dark Knight stuff was uh, mm. just far better comics. You know, but... Uh, but I liked Watchmen. I'm not putting it down. I, like I say, I think the craftsmanship in that book is just phenomenal. Um, uh, but yeah, boy, doing the Silk Spectre book, it nearly killed both of us. It really did. I think we both just collapsed for like two weeks after both the surprise because they both kind of started at the same time and ended at the same time. For sure. I, I, I really love those Wednesday comics, and it was such a such an interesting experiment. And yeah. Um, like I, I bought them all, and then I remember I bought the, the large hardcover they put out afterwards because it's just gorgeous artwork. Yeah, yeah. Mark Giarello is—he uh, was the editor on it, and he's just brilliant at putting those projects together. But he always picks projects that are going to be the most difficult thing. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm going to put together a thing that's going to be a weekly thing, and there's going to be you know twenty three page or twenty pages in each issue. So I'm working with, you know, 20 different pencilers, 20 different writers, 20 different inkers, 20 different colors, 20 different letters on a <laughs> weekly basis. And they all have to meet their weekly deadlines. And uh, it's like, I think Mark collapsed at the end of that, too. So, <laughs> and I think he was I think he was the editor on those Silk Spectre stuff, too. So he was going through the same agony that we were. So. Oh, my God. And I'm sure I'm sure Amanda and I contributed to his agony at times. So <laughs> is there is there um, like a title that you've been able to work on that? was more, it was kind of like, not wish fulfillment, but kind of like a, you know, if only my younger version of me could see me now that I actually get to, to color this book, what book would that be? Or what character would it be? That's a really good question. I still, it's still amazing to me that, like, you know, I can hang out at Continuity Studios and chat with Neil Adams or, you know, work with Neil and his whole family on books. And, um... You know, there's there's that little bit of fanboy in me. You know, it's like I colored a Starenko poster once. Like, oh my god, I got to work with Starenko. You know, these are the people that were just gods to me growing up. And uh, and it's amazing because just recently at conventions and stuff, I've kind of become friendlier with you know Jim Starlin and and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and and just to you know, wow, I'm having dinner with these guys that were like gods to me when I was (laughs) you know when I was a teenager. It's just it's still just boggles my mind you know when you were working on the ff with with uh with ringo what what did you find was the 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 most challenging aspect of coloring that book i mean (laughs) (laughs) mark wade scripts (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I'll tell you what, because, and Mark knows this, because um, I used to give him shit about it, too. Um, he would write, there's one character, there's one villain, and he described the villain as, uh, he's going to be all in black, but he's going to have green glowing, green like digital numbers running up and down him, like, you know, the yep. green numbers in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. And those numbers are going to glow. And they're going to run up and down his entire body, following the contours of his body, and they have to look like they're in motion and glowing <laughs> in every panel. <laughs> and then he typed out like a little like four or five letter equation. It's like, here's the numbers that are going to be in the equation. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so take those and repeat those and make like a villain's costume. It's like, Mark, what do, what do you do? Yeah, you can type out six letters. Great. <laughs> You know, Hart's going to be do that in every panel of this book. I, see, I actually, I, it's funny. As I asked the question, I was thinking about that because I remember that character specifically, and it was uh, really early in your run too. It was only like the, I think, yeah. the, like the second or third issue, and it's yeah. a, it's a really intriguing visual. But I was always curious how you kind of got that visual to work. Uh, Not yeah, easy, there's a lot, of, a lot of layers and a lot of special effects, and. Uh, yeah, that, that was a photo. That was a crash course in Photoshop special effects, right there. Um, yeah, there was another. There's another issue where he uh, he said, "Okay, the opening thing is going to be a two page, double page spread, and so we have Times Square." And he spent like three or four sentences describing like all the activity in Times Square because it's like an aerial bird's eye shot of Times Square. And right in the middle of the island, you're going to have I think it was like Sue Storm, and she's painting a picture, or taking a photograph, or something, but. The people around her can't see her because she's invisible and she's making their subject invisible too. She's taking a picture of Reed or something and they don't want to. It's just like, how do you draw that? How do you make that work? It's easy to describe that on a page, but, you know. But, you know. But, you know, I, I, I would kid him about it, but, you know, Mark, Mark's a very visual writer too. Mm. He, you know, he knows comics, he knows his structure. So. Now this this may not be you at all, so I apologize in advance. But when you guys took over FF and started uh, your run together, um, were you involved in, in creating the new logo, or was that someone else? No, that wasn't that wasn't me. That was all done in house. That was yeah. What did you think yeah, of that I, logo? It's different. Um, my favorite logo is still the one from like the probably the mid seventies. Early mid seventies, when Rich Buckler was drawing the title, okay. um, the pre Perez books. Um, I like that logo a lot. I know everybody loves the original Fantastic Four logo, the kind of circus lettering. I was never a huge fan of that. It was fine, you know. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. Um, I thought it was interesting when when Mark Miller and Brian Hitch came on the book. They had just the big F four, you know, in the bottom corner of the book, which I thought was an interesting way to do a logo treatment. That's um, true, yeah. What uh, what which artist did you th- find when when doing Fantastic Four? Because you worked with a lot of different artists. Which one did you find that um, again was the more challenging to kind of match the right color palette to? Because maybe they were doing something a little bit different, or the tone of the story was just different than what you'd seen before. Um, Mike was probably the toughest, just because. There were so many things, and, and Mike was Mike was smart about this. You know, he he understood because we had worked together so long what can be done with color. So, you know, he would push things. You know, if he had Johnny Storm standing on an invisible platform flying through outer space, you know, he would make the drawing fairly minimal, knowing that I could paint in mm. a lot of the other stuff. You know. <laughs> um, 
so you know that that left a lot of the burden on the colors. Now, there was one, and I'm not going to say who the artist was, but there was one issue where you see Reed Richards falling through space, and uh, you know the script is there describes you know he starts seeing close up, and then each panel Reed gets a little smaller and smaller, and of course I get the pages and it's just a blank panel with Reed until like about the third or fourth panel. It's just like a little black dot in the middle of the panel with notes paint in space. That can be tough. <laughs> yeah. And that, that happens a lot. It happens more and more these days where, you know, artists expect the colors to carry much more of a burden. Um, Unfortunately, they don't want to give any of their paycheck. I, t- I called the other. He says, "Am I getting half his paycheck for this page?" And he's like, "No." <laughs> like, okay, fine. What was um, it? What was it like working on a book like Children of the Atom, X Men Children of the Atom with uh, Casey? And you had different artists. But you got to you got to do colors over Steve Rude. What was that like? Yeah, and well, Steve and I had worked together quite a bit on Nexus. I had done well, three right. or four Nexus miniseries with him. So we had a pretty good working relationship. Um, Steve definitely had a very definite sense. You know, he's a painter, so he's got a very definite sense of color. Hmm. And uh, so we'd spend hours on the phone just going over all the pages, send him the JPEGs. And it's like, change this, make this. And there were certain colors that he just hated, which sometimes I would put in just to, like, hear him go off. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he hated he hated like a bright yellow green. He says never never use that color in a page at all. <laughs> um, you know his uh, his one thing was even if it's even if it's a scene that's supposed to be ugly, like with villains or people dying and stuff, it shouldn't be unpleasant to look at. It should always be pretty to look at. <laughs> it's like okay, <laughs> it's an interesting theory, but sure. What um what what colors have you um like seen the work of that you've most wanted to emulate or are you, are there any artists where you're just kind of like oh man I, I should totally steal that or that kind of like I mean it's an interesting community I would imagine of different colors but which ones do you most find yourself wanting to crib a little or learn from and, and kind of adapt pieces into your own work or do you find that you're just kind of good with doing your own Yeah you know I've been doing this for so long and I I. I know my color sense and my color storytelling is very different than almost any colorist out there. I think it's sometimes works in my favor and sometimes works against me because I don't look like any, any other colorist out there. Um, so, I mean, there's certainly colors whose work I really admire. I think there are some people who are vastly underrated. Chris Chucker does amazing work and never really gets the credit he should for it. Um, you know, there's a few others, um, but, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm set in my own ways. And, uh, you know, the people who influenced me were the people who I looked at when I was, you know, a teenager just getting into the field. It was like Steve Olaf on the Rampaging Hulk magazines. And, uh, mm. you know, obviously what Lynn Varley was doing on uh, on the Frank Miller stuff. Um, and not even Dark Knight, but especially like on Ronin, to watch the, the artistic evolution of Ronin as they figured out what you could do with color and line on that better paper and everything. You know, you see these stuff, the line work get finer and thinner, more European as the book went on and let the color palettes, you know, not a lot of rendering, but just a simple color palette carry most of the, uh, the emotional weight and everything. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, so Richmond Lewis did some really beautiful work back then. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's the people that I was, you know, really influenced by Tom Palmer did a couple of hand painted 
super specials. He did like the adaptation of the movie Meteor. I think that was one of them. And a star, there's an issue of Star Lord that Tom Palmer painted uh, for Marvel Super Special Magazine that was just astonishing to me that anybody could actually do that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so in the in the mid two thousands, you also got to work on Superman Red Sun, which is obviously a very well received, well remembered book. What was it like, kind of f- figuring out how that worked? Because that's the color is very important to that book. Yeah, that was an interesting project, too. Um, Dave really hated my color on that book. Oh, really? (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Dave wanted a certain look to it, and I agreed with him. He wanted it to be flat color, you know, very graphic, very art deco and everything. The problem was DC said, we're paying you for painted color. We're paying you for full painted color. You know, we're not paying you for flat color, so you've got to add something to this. And, you know, Dave and I have talked about it. Dave and I get along very well now, but, uh, you know, he, had, he he kind of understood that, like, it wasn't exactly how I wanted the book to look. I, mean, I think it looked okay. We, I tried to kind of strike a compromise between what Dave wanted and what, you know, the editor wanted and what DC wanted. Um, you know, I'm certainly happy when I look at it now, but, you know, if I colored it now, I'd color it a lot differently. So, What kind of approach would you employ now? Uh, again, it probably would have been a lot simpler. Um, you know, I did some of that work with Alex Maleev on some of his, on Star Wars and uh, Iron Man, the Lando book and Iron Man, and uh, you know, kind of a palette that like Dave Johnson looked at that stuff and says, "That's how I wanted you to color Red Sun." It's like I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of Lando, what was it like to actually bring that character to life? And because that's obviously a very specific look as well that you're adapting and with your own style, but it, it, so it both feels like a Paul Mount's piece of artwork, but at the same time lives in that Star Wars space. Yeah, I, um, you know, in the, in the same vein, I guess, as, as the Watchmen Project, I came onto it. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I mean, I appreciate what it is. I'm not, you know, it's not like a, a pop culture Bible to me the way it is for a lot of people. Um, but I loved working on that book. Boy, that was, uh, you know, Alex Maleev's art is just phenomenal. And uh, Charles Soule's writing, you know, when we got the script, it's like, okay, it's going to be, what, five issues. And most of it's going to take place in, like, two or three rooms on a, sh- on, a, on a ship. It's basically like an elevator story. You know what they talk about in television shows where they shoot an elevator episode? Mm-hmm which means that they don't have any budget to go outside. <laughs> so it's like a locked room episode. So it was like, it was like the whole, you know, out of these five issues, four of them are going to take place in like three rooms on a satellite. And it's like, really? That seems, wow. And especially for a character like Lando, whose whole thing is, you know, being gregarious. And But boy, he pulled it off. And that book was just a ball to work on. I really loved working on that stuff. Now, speaking of kind of stretching yourself, you recently worked on the Harley Quinn Gossamer uh, one-shot. What was it like kind of bringing those characters together and, again, employing your visual style? And you're not working, I guess, with Amanda on the art there. You worked with Brito instead. Yes. Yeah, that that was an interesting book, too. Um, hadn't really had much con- communication with, with him directly. You know, uh, Jimmy plotted it and Jimmy and Amanda scripted it and... Uh, um, Jimmy's definitely got a very strong color sense of what he wants. So he and I talked about the book. He wanted to have, first of all, more of a grayish-brownish palette, kind of like the original Bugs Bunny cartoons, where the first cartoon that Gossamer was in, you know, it's almost like like a 
horror noir kind of cartoon where it's all like dark shadowy and everything except for Gossamer, which is bright red in the middle of all this. So that was kind of the goal on that book. Um, you know, I wish I wish Gossamer had looked more like Gossamer did in the cartoons, but that was an editorial decision. <laughs> so it does seem interesting yeah. which which of those one shots they allow the characters to be more on the original model, and which ones they go really far afield. Yeah, and I have no idea how those decisions those decisions are made. Because um, I'd asked Jimmy, it's like, well, why doesn't Gossamer look like Gossamer? What's what's with the the face like this? And he says, no, nope, that's what we were told. It's like, okay. <laughs> I felt the same. I felt the same way when I saw the uh, the Porky Pig one. Like the story was interesting, but the the design work on Porky Pig just looked a little weird. Yeah, it's it's a tricky balance, you know. Um, the whole the whole idea was to bring these characters into the real real world and then do like a backup story where you'd see almost the same story but from the cartoony point of view. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it worked. Like I thought. Um, the one I worked on with Mark Texiera, uh, the you know and Jimmy, the uh, Yosemite Sam one, oh yeah, was just brilliant to have Foghorn Leghorn as like a freak in a circus sideshow. So you could still have a giant talking chicken, and it still made sense in the story because he was <laughs> in a freak show. You know, that's a fair. That's, so. that's a good point. Uh, as as we come to a close here, what uh, what else can you tease us that's upcoming? Obviously, you're working on Immortal Hulk, and you have some other stuff you can't quite mention. Is there anything else you can tell us about? Oh, God. Um, I got two really cool projects coming up, but yeah, I can't talk about them, unfortunately. <laughs> One of them I might be able to talk about, but I'm not sure. I don't want to cross any lines. No, no, you that's, know. that's uh, fair. Let's, let's not, uh, let's not uh, get you on any hit list anywhere. Yeah, yeah. One of them, uh, one of them has been announced, and it's odd that you should use that phrase. Um, but uh, I don't think... A whole lot of information is out there about it yet, so I probably shouldn't say anything. Okay. Now, and do you foresee being on an Immortal Hulk for a while, or like, do you have any idea what, what how that's going to go? Or I'd like to be on as long as they want to keep working together. I love that book. I think uh, I think Al Ewing's writing is amazing, and Joe Bennett's art is I mean just gets better and better and better, like exponentially better every issue. Um, how did you approach kind of how to color Sasquatch? Because it was an interesting color palette that, again, felt very perfect for the story that Immortal Hulk is doing, yet somewhat a little bit different than what we're used to in terms of not being quite as bright and, you know, kind of out there as Sasquatch has sometimes been in other books. Yeah, um, part of it was that the the possessed Sasquatch, the, you know, the, the dark Sasquatch, probably just right off the bat wasn't going to be as bright and orange as you know, he's been colored in the past. And part of it was just the setting and the palette of the book. You know, he's in these dark, shadowy uh, hospital hallways where the lights have been knocked out. And, you know, and you see the lighting change throughout the book. But, um, but yeah, a really bright, same thing with Hulk. If you color him like a really bright green, he sticks out like a sore thumb. He looks like a cartoon character against the surroundings. So it's always a, a little tightrope walk. Um, I'm always amazed by some of the reviews on Immortal Hulk because people tend to see what they want to see in it, it seems. I've had some reviews talk about how great it is to see this like dark horror palette. I've seen other reviews say, wow, these bright colors on the Hulk really shouldn't work in a horror comic, but they kind of do, but they're really bright and colorful. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, everybody brings their own their own psychology and their own baggage, I guess, to whatever they're looking at. 
Absolutely. Well, Paul, thank you so much for spending so much time with us tonight. And uh, uh, we look forward to hearing more about your upcoming projects as they get announced. And again, I'm enjoying the heck out of Immortal Hulk. It's fantastic. Great. Well, I'm glad. I'm, I'm having a ball working on it. So, and then obviously people should go back and check out all your uh, all your other work, especially your stuff with Michael Ringo, because it's just so special to to read it. It's just something about the synthesis of you guys working together. It's just it's just a joy to read, and I think that's always something I got from Mike's work is that there was always a sense of joy to it. Yeah, I got to tell you, Telos working on Telos with him was probably one of the, the great greatest times I've ever had working in comics. I can name two or three books that I've worked on that uh, that were at that level of just sheer joy, and that was one of them. So, Excellent. Well, thank, again, thank you so much, and uh, we'll make sure to have you back on again in the future to talk about some of those projects that you can't talk about yet. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care.